Hello, my name is David Martinez, and today we're going to talk about how to make long-term travel a reality. So a question that often comes up with long-term travel is, how do you get started? How do you afford it? How do you do it financially? And do you put money away? Do you have to save up enough money so that when you come back, you can survive for a number of months? I get this question all the time. I'm sure you get this question all the time. Oh, yeah. Do you have a go-to answer? It's, it's a basic question. And I think the answer can be freeing to people who haven't considered it yet. And, and one is it's, it's really just a matter of freeing up enough time to make it happen. Um, just sort of realizing that you don't really need to throw money at a year-long trip like you might be tempted to on a shorter vacation that um, you can actually go a lot slower, you can travel in local economies in cheaper parts of the world, and you can actually, with the money you've saved, you can travel full-time for less per day than it would cost to live in a city like Portland or New York or Austin, right? Um, just because every meal is gonna be exponentially cheaper, rent in hotels is gonna be cheaper too. Once you realize that, um, that sort of shadow economy of travel, traveling in local economies in cheaper parts of the world, um, it's just a total paradigm shift. You know, it really enables things like long-term travel to happen, to be something that you internalize. Yeah, and it's specific to to kinds of jobs. You know, I can, I've can i had conversations with people who can't do it because of their job. And so it involves a much bigger life decision. I'm going to quit mm -hmm. my job uh, and go travel for a year or six months or whatever and then come back and then, what, get a different job? Uh, I like my job, right? I This is my career. This is what I see myself doing. It's a lot easier if you hate your job, you know, because then you can, you work for a number of months, uh, you know, eight, nine months, even a year, and you put up with this job because you have this end goal in, in mind, right? In sight, I'm going to save up this money, and then I'm going to go have this adventure, and then I'll figure it out when I get back. But not not everybody can do that. You know, you did that right after, right out of college. Mm -hmm. You worked for a number of months, and then you took off. Did you ever think about, or were you, in the back of your mind was, what am I going to do after this? Yeah, I think that's always a thing. And especially when you're younger and you're not really sure what you're going to do, even if you didn't leave home, uh, that's that's worth thinking about. And it, it, it's, a, it's an understandable concern. Um, but now more than ever, it's less of a big issue because the idea of employment is a lot more malleable than it used to be. We're no longer just taking our time card to the factory and punching the clock and coming out after a hard days work on the assembly line, especially since the pandemic, remote work, just the idea that people would need to physically be in a room together or do a 45 minute commute uh, down an interstate highway, that's less important now. So I think even people who aren't interested in travel, they're, they're working in different ways anyway. They're working in a location independent way. And then another thing too, it occurs to me, but again, we're not we're not punching a clock at a factory that you can, if you, even if you love your job, you can talk to your boss and say, Look, I would love to take a six week, six month trip. I'll do an unpaid sabbatical. Like you don't need to quit necessarily, but you can sort of incentivize it for them. Just say, I'll, I'll come back happier. I'll, I'll be more dynamic. I'll have these skills. Uh, and so I think the idea of time being these blocked off things is different because employment is different. And of course, it, it really depends on what job you have, but that is an option. And then the other thing, uh, in Vagabonding, I call it an anti-sabbatical. It's, it's work that you do to make money for travel and you aren't necessarily gonna be your career. So I worked for eight months as a landscaper in Seattle, had no real ambition to 
um, become a professional landscaper, but it, it was a way to make good money and, and it funded my first vagabonding trip, just like teaching English as a foreign language in Korea, um, funded my first big international vagabonding trip. And so that, especially for young people, that's an option, you know, that you, you don't need to save a ton of money, but if you can like live in a simple and minimalistic way so that you're not spending $5 on coffee every day, you know, you're making your own coffee, um, you're, you're cutting out certain expenses, that's paying off in time. Um, and often in travel adventures. So that's another thing that's important to keep in mind. Yeah, you talk about that in your book, Vagabonding. You talk about how preparing or you know not buying that coffee at Starbucks is a way of traveling already because you're saving that money so that in the future you can spend one extra day in, in whatever country or region of the world you're traveling to. But to go back to the job, you know, I... What I respond, my response to students or to people who have, uh, with whom I have this conversation is, you know, do you do you really want this? You know, because it does. It it comes with sacrifice. Uh, often you can't take that sabbatical, or often you like your job too much. It's like okay, and that's fine. You know, you're you're on on a path, on a trajectory. You're on this career, and that's and that's okay. That's that's honorable as well. If you really want this adventure, if you really want to travel long term, you're going to have to give up part of that. Part of the anxiety in the United States in particular is, uh, you know, because I, I don't know what the percentage is. I used to know 30% or something of, of Americans take vacation. Like Americans are so afraid of taking vacation because the fear is that my job, my employer is going to realize that, that they can do the job without <laughs> me, you know, or they, they didn't need me in the first place or we're more efficient without him or her. And so you're fired <laughs> on your, as you return from, you know, from your vacation or, you know, six months, if you have this anxiety over a one or two week vacation, I could imagine a six month vacation or, or sabbatical. Uh, but again, I agree with you in that if you, if this is something that you want to pursue, uh, it's, it's planning with enough time in advance, six months, eight months, you worked for seven months, you said, right. Before you went on your first, um, van yeah. trip. So yeah. So seven months in advance, it requires a lot of time, you know, and effort and planning. It's not the, so I got wake up today and say next week, I'm going to go and spend nine months in, right. in Southeast Asia. Uh, and I think with that planning, uh, the other thing that we, we need to talk about is where do you want to go? It's, yeah. it's going to be very different to spend six months in Europe than it is in Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia, the most expensive part of that trip is going to be your flight. Yeah. Once you're there, yeah. it's it can be very cheap to get around. And then let's talk about the kinds of places where you're willing to stay. Mm -hmm. You know, do you need higher end resorts? You know, come more comfortable beds. Uh, you know, or or do you need to be right first line of the beach? You know, right. right. Um, and I think that's another consideration when you're planning for these long term trips. What what is I guess we let's go back and define long term travel because that's going to be different. Yeah. Uh, depending on who you are. For some, it's three weeks. For others, six months. For me, long-term travel, I think of, it's got to be, I'm going to arbitrarily throw out four months. Let's start right. there. You know, I think I, I try not to be too rigid about the definition of long-term travel because I think long-term travel is anything that sort of gets you out of your your home cycles and routines. And sometimes a vacation can be a part of that in that it's just a, it's a one-week escape and then you click right back into your home life. Um, and actually, like, 150 years ago, vacations were sort of invented to, to increase productivity. Like the factory workers thought, oh, well, you know, our, they'll come back refreshed and they'll work harder. Well, maybe a, a vacation is its own reward, right? I, I think, uh, yeah, so often in a work environment, and oftentimes even in a family environment, we defer our best lives. We think, oh, we, I need to save enough money before I can really start to enjoy myself. 
Well, parenting is a good example. I know you're a parent that you can't, so much of our job as parents is trying to prepare our kids to be self-sufficient and financially secure later. But if you're obsessed with that as a parent, then you're gonna lose these beautiful moments that you're gonna miss later. It's like, I only have my kid at age two once. At age eight, they're doing these super cute things. If, I, if I'm just worried about disciplining them for some future self-sufficiency, then that is deferring your life to an abstraction called the future. And I think that can happen with work too, is that maybe we sort of like our job, but we like its security, we like the, the health benefits, things like that. And so it's understandable. But often you have to think about, well, how much of my life am I putting off to the future? And maybe in the near future, I can save enough money in two years to travel for six months. And then I'm going to remember that more fondly than other things that I've had before. Uh, and then, you know, you find ways. I always say that once you're on the road, you become much smarter than you would be studying about travel in your home office. And so you might think, yeah, I'm not sure if I want to stay in some dirtbag $12 hotel when this resort has like a free buffet for $200. And once you're on the road, you realize that it's actually more pleasurable often to stay in these cheaper mom and pop economy type things because a lot of resorts, not to knock them too much, but they insulate you from the reality of the place where you are. And so this is a great double duty thing that as you're saving money, you're actually traveling in a more dynamic way. And often you're giving more money into the local economy that serves that economy in a useful way. Yeah. And you could extend your stay too, if, if you're looking for this long-term experience or at the very least have a little bit of a, a nest egg, I guess, when you get back to, to, um, to your home, to your, to your country. Uh, you just mentioned deferring your life. I think often we think of travel as something I'm going to do when I retire. I'm going to work until mm -hmm. I'm 65, 67, and then I'm going to travel. And I, I remember uh, I was on a trip in Spain, southern Spain. I remember seeing a bus uh, full of people, and they, and they all came out, and they were all retirement age, and and they were they came out and took all the pictures of the of the thing, whatever um, monument we were looking at, and uh, and I remember thinking. That's kind of the mentality. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to work, and then I'm going to retire, and then travel. But that's that's a very a very different kind of traveling. Uh, uh, and there is there's a lot more that you can do when you're younger. You know, you're uh, you can sleep in in more uncomfortable places. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to do perhaps more hiking and so forth. And so I, early on, I I decided that I didn't want to defer my traveling until the very end. And I had a job in Spain and Madrid and I quit the job. My wife and I, we both quit our job. She had a great job with Lufthansa and uh, she took a, speaking of leaves uh, of sabbaticals in, in Europe, it's not uncommon to take, they're called uh, excedencias, like sabbaticals. And she took a five year Whoa. sabbatical, uh, which I love it when she, when she tells her American friends about this five year <laughs> leave of absence, unpaid of course. But in those five years, she got to keep her, her benefits, her tickets. Oh, that's great. And uh, so we she took this five year leave of absence, and we just we bought a one way ticket to Taiwan. Uh, we had a, a friend that we had met during our travels, and I think we met him in Cambodia. And um, we landed in Taiwan, and within three weeks, we had apartments, we had scooters, we had jobs, and we ended up staying for for two years. And and I tell that story because I I think there's this anxiety of. I need to go to a place where I have everything set up. I need to have the apartment. I need to have uh, the job lined up because what happens if, and I don't, you know, to the degree in which you are adventurous or able to fail, quote unquote, I always thought the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to have a great time in Taiwan. Maybe we'll travel around a, little, a bit more uh, and then we'll come back to Spain and we'll be failures. 
the idea was to go to South, you know, Asia or go to Taiwan or wherever and, and spend a couple of years there. And we failed, you know, that's the worst that could happen. Another friend of mine uh, did something similar where he quit his job and went to Colombia, and he was there for about five weeks and came back and said, it just it wasn't for me. Hmm. So the worst case scenario, he's got five, five weeks that he spent in, in Colombia. And so that's the, that's the kind of conversation I like to have with people. It can seem a little bit uh, um, dangerous, I guess, but it really is not. If you can get over this idea of maybe I'll fail, but even failing is going to be this, this great success and a slash travel story. I think it's letting go of expectations too, because if you go to Colombia or Bulgaria or wherever with the idea that you're going to tick something off your box or advance your career or find a new passion, and then if it doesn't happen, well, you've still been in an interesting place. Just imagine how forgettable those five weeks or whatever would have been if you were at home in your old routines. And so I think it's a win-win type situation. And oftentimes we, we're sort of inculcated in American society to assume that um, there are very specific things that 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 indicate success in life. I, I taught at some Ivy League schools for a while and a lot of, a lot of my students, um, they were able to have like by their mid-20s internships that led to six-figure income jobs, which is what they had sort of desired their whole life because it sounds cool to have a six-figure six income. And they were, they were stressed out by age 26, right? And so it's that sort of redefinition of success. I think sometimes we don't know the best way to spend, well, we'll use like a six month as, as an example. Well, they spent a lot of time, they were working whatever, 60 hour weeks on Wall Street, think towards this abstract goal of air quote success, actually, and they flamed out and considered that sort of a negative time in their life. Well, all the better to go to the other side of the world. If, and if it's not gonna be super successful, at least you have, tasted new foods and made new friends and had a really super memorable way to not succeed in the way you thought you had. Yeah. I think you and I have a similar experience in that we both decided to teach English abroad. That's, I, I talk to students often about how this is a, a fairly easy way to do long-term travel, especially in Southeast Asia, maybe a little bit more difficult in Europe, though still possible, uh, and then South America as well. Uh, so we talked about how much money you need at the beginning. Well, we didn't talk, we didn't give it a specific figure, but of course it's gonna depend on where you go. But to have, you know, a, a chunk of money, I think we went to Taiwan, I think we had $3,000, uh, something in that vicinity. Of course, in a, in a way it was cheating because we had my wife's, you know, fairly cheap tickets. I think mm. we paid $100 for a, a one-way ticket from Madrid to, to Taipei. Um, so you might need a little bit more money, uh, but we did have a, a chunk of money. And then we had, of course, we had an escape route. We had a, the, the option of always coming back to, to Madrid, uh, to Spain, or even, even to the United States. Um, so I think teaching English is a great way. And again, this is similar where in, in South Korea, I taught English in South Korea for a summer. And I remember one of the first nights we were, the expats, uh, other teachers, we were walking from from the school and we're going out to dinner and we're about to cross the street and this lady comes up to us and says, hey, are you English teachers? So we were foreigners, obviously. And we said, yeah. And she's like, I'm, I'm looking for English teachers. Would you, you know, <laughs> would you consider working for, for my, um, my after school um, school? After school, um, what do yeah, you call it? They're called hagwans. Ha hagwans, yeah, I, yeah. Couldn't, I couldn't think of the word. Yeah, hagwans. Like a language uh, institute. Yeah, exactly. And we said, no, we have we, we have a job already. I'm sorry. And then after my time, I was there for the summer. I had three offers to stay for the for the next year to teach English. So it, it is very easy. But at the same time, I also, I want to be careful to say, you know, it's really easy. Go and teach English. I also stress the importance of 
uh, of learning how to do it, how to do it well, mm. uh, how to be professional. Um, partly because in Taiwan, often the English teachers have a pretty bad reputation. They're kind of using English, teaching English to, abroad as a way to travel. So to give you an example, um, in um, Taichung, a lot of the schools will they'll, they'll pay you uh, a monthly salary, but then they'll give you bonuses. All right. And the bonuses are if you don't call in sick, we'll give hmm. you a bonus. Huh. If you show up on time, we'll give you a bonus. And I was floored when I heard about this because that's what you're supposed to do. Right. But so many English teachers were there and they were partying till, you know, all hours of the night and then calling in sick the next day and so forth. And so I think there's a there's a balance there. Yeah. Use, you know, teach English abroad. It's a great thing to do, but be professional, be good within in what you do. Yeah, and I think that goes all the way down. That basically be present and and be your best self in all these situations. Um, and that's a huge cliche in Korea is that we're just knucklehead foreigners coming in, earning more money than they were used to, not really caring about it, sort of complaining and feeling like that. Oh, they were victims. Korean people are judging me, and it's like you're a guest in another culture. Yeah. Do some study. Be, just try to be a better teacher because you'll be less depressed actually if you take some pride in your work. I think it's worth acknowledging here too that long-term travel can be anything from like a three-week study abroad program. You know, it's anything that gets you out of your local habits to like a 10-year journey around the world. Yeah. But I don't think that there's a contest like you're a better traveler the longer you travel. I think some travelers fall into that. And so I just want to make sure that anybody who's who's listening to this understand that you, you, um, you can take, long-term travel is very much self-defined, you know. Um, actually, some of the saddest travelers I've met on the road are people who are in year six, and they're so proud that they're still traveling after six years, but they don't really do anything interesting. They sit around with other travelers and brag about how long they've been traveling, but that's about it. <laughs> so I think that you have permission to design your own long-term journey as it, obviously teaching English uh, abroad was rewarding and fun for you as it was for me, although it was hard at times. But you don't necessarily, uh, like often there's the term gap year, which is less common in the US than the UK and Australia. And so one year is a common uh, length for a, for a long-term journey. And it's a, good, it's a good measuring stick, you know, you can do a lot in a year, but that doesn't mean you have to go for a year. I think some people can go for four months and completely blow their mind and have new paradigms that they can bring home and give back to their community. Um, whereas other people think they're going for a four month trip, trip and then they get offered that English job or they run into an opportunity in like IT in this part of Singapore and suddenly they are starting a business. And so I think that fluidity and not thinking that there's any one standard of long-term travel that you have to hew to is, is good to keep in mind. A year can be great, 10 years can be great, but a few months can be great too and, and can spin you in new directions that can really be rewarding. Yeah, this goes back to what you were saying about expectations. If your expectation is I'm gonna travel for 10 years, you know, uh, like my friend who was in Colombia, his plan was to be there long term, learn Spanish and so forth, and then came back after five weeks, hmm. recognizing, realizing that that wasn't for him. In the same way that a short trip, a three week trip could turn into this this much longer, longer thing. Yeah, I, I like your distinction. Long term travel. You know, the other thing too, study abroad for for a semester is a great way to do or to get started on on long-term travel because what happens with with semester abroad programs is you spend a semester in Spain but then on the weekends you have a long weekend you might go on vacation hmm. to Paris or to Italy or, or somewhere so now you're you're kind of you know you're you're in a different context which is your new home oikos uh, you know and then from that home you're going on vacation to a different 
country and then you're coming back to your new home which isn't really your original home and that can that can do a lot to to you um intellectually and so forth. I love also what you said about, uh, you know, it doesn't make you a smarter traveler. Uh, as much as I've traveled all over the world, um, I was in Niagara Falls with my wife and we got ripped off <laughs> by some kind of tour guide who wanted to take us around and, and it sounded great. And we jumped into this van and, and it was just, it was a total ripoff. Hmm. So you, I don't think you're right. I don't, I don't, I don't, I think that you be, you can become more savvy, but just because you've been around the world and, and been ripped off in other parts of the country, doesn't mean that's, it's, that's, that's going to stop happening. <laughs> yeah. And you have to forgive yourself those occasional mistakes yes. because that means you're pushing your comfort zone and you're trying new things a little bit. Making the same mistake multiple times is probably not as rewarding as finding <laughs> new ways to make mistakes. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think my nephew, I got a text from him this morning. He just arrived in England in Oxford for his first ever study abroad program. And he's going to take a lot of side trips too. Um, like he's going to meet uh, my wife and me in Paris this summer. I'm sure he's going to go hiking in Scotland and things like that. And so one fun thing about study abroad, which is something I never did, um, is that it gives you a new home base from which to do the one staying in one place is sort of new and exciting. And then all of a sudden it's like, really, I can fly to Brussels for $50. I'm going to go to Brussels, yep. you know? Uh, and that, that's literally a story that happened when my wife was studying drama in, in London. She found that everything is so close and fun that you could really, you could spend your spare time in London, which is a great place, or you could go to someplace cool that, um, that's closer than most U.S. states are when you're, when you're home. Yeah, our students in Lithuania, when they study abroad there, they will often find tickets for ten or twenty dollars to mm. Milan or to wow. to different different cities in in Europe. Again, Europe is it's 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 big, but it's it's there are countries that are right next to each other, and so it's easy to experience all these different cuisines and different you know um, different countries. So we talked about kind of the cost. Think about like a chunk of money, tickets. Uh, think about the kinds of places where you're going to stay. We talked about teaching English abroad. I know the foreign service also, that's another thing that I was considering for a while. And I don't know if you have any experience or if you talked to anybody who's, who's been in the foreign service, it what always appealed to me about it is that you don't really get to decide where you go hmm. and you spend, they don't, they won't let you spend more than two to three years. The foreign service, this is the state department, right? This mm -hmm. is, and you can, and there are different categories. You can be an ambassador, which is at the very top, or you can be kind of the more clerical kind of people, I guess, towards the bottom, if we're going to use this, you know, kind of hierarchy. Um, uh, forgive me if I'm, if I'm used that in incorrectly, I'm not super familiar with the foreign service, but I, I started the application process a couple of times. And that's another great way to, to travel and see the world. The idea that you could spend two to three years in one country, it seems like a, a chunk of time where you could learn the language, you could learn about the culture, uh, definitely long-term stay. Do you have any other ideas or ways of, of long-term traveling? Yeah, well, um, I don't have a lot of experience with foreign service type situations, but when I taught at Ivy League schools, I taught at Penn and Yale for a while, my students were really locked into that, okay. you know, because it's, I think when you have, you know, uh, uh, an elite school on your resume, the foreign service is probably sta staffed by people from elite schools. They're going to say, yeah, we'll take this guy from Yale. I tried to encourage my Yale and Penn students not to fall back on that. Like, just go out and have a knucklehead six-month journey around Asia or Europe. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. It's not a homework assignment. Sure, you get some money in the foreign service, but just save some money working at the ice cream stand or whatever um, and just have an adventure, and then you'll have context for your foreign service assignment. 
Um, and so I think I, I tell this to digital nomads too, because digital nomadism is such a big movement now that you Which can Which is just, another way to long-term travel. It's right? absolutely a way to long-term travel. And, and it can be not dynamic if you allow yourself to do so, but there are now expatriate compounds with good Wi-Fi in places like Bali and Cancun and Tbilisi, Georgia. And that's great, but what happens is somebody will move from Bakersfield to Tbilisi and they don't really meet anybody in Georgia and they're sort of working just as hard as they were back. They're still working a 60 hour week. They just have you know, a country with better cheese and wine or something. And so for all of these situations that feel like good fixes, I try to encourage people to have a ragged edge personal adventure first. So if you're gonna join the foreign service, great, but just go backpack around Africa or Europe or Asia for a while first. And then you'll have better instincts for how these work. You, you know, it's you will have made those mistakes that you will make you a better employee of the foreign service, and just sort of have give you a more intuitive understanding of how other cultures work outside of the classroom. Because I think sometimes we're going from like our a classroom here to a foreign service job here. We're going from our IT uh, office in California to an IT t office in Cancun, and you're not really learning much in the interval. So. Um, that's a that's a long-winded way of saying don't uh, be afraid to give yourself a ragged-edged personal trip before you find ways to make it more remunerative. Yeah, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier about perspective. You know, I, I always thought the digital nomading world appealed to me because it seemed amazing that you could work for two hours a day and and live kind of in the same you know with the same. Uh, kinds of things that you would in the United States work in eight hour days. Right? Mm. So the, the, the appeal of working in Bali and the surfing for a couple hours, working for a couple hours and then, you know, um, traveling around Indonesia or the Philippines and so forth. That's what that's what's appealing. And with teaching English abroad, it was kind of similar. The comparison in Taiwan, the comparison that was made is that we make as much money as like a, a fairly successful dentist in in, um, in in Taiwan. And so for me, that meant I'm going to work Monday through Thursday. I'm not going to work five days a week mm -hmm. because I can live, you know, we can live, live uh, more frugally and that's, and I want free time. That's what, that's what I wanted. And I did the same thing when I was teaching English in Spain, I worked it out, you know, you work for a year, you know, learn, figure out how things work. And then you decrease those number of days. And so same thing, I was working Monday through Thursday. So every weekend for me was every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I was traveling, I was climbing. That's when I was doing a lot more climbing. Uh, and so those are the experiences I think when I, when I think of long-term travel, I think about, I'm not going to take my life here and transplant it somewhere else. How can I um, maneuver things, move things around so that I can have more free time? And then, yeah, at the same time, maybe save some money and so forth. The other, the other you know, and as a teacher, this is what I fall back on often, but the other way to long-term travel is through uh, these international boarding schools. Hmm. I think NAIS is one of the websites. Uh, there are a few other sites that you can go on and, and there's all these American schools around the world and they're always looking for teachers. Sometimes you need to be certified, not always depending on, on what your area is. Uh, but that's another great way to, to you know, if you're, if you're f more fearful or more nervous or anxious about this, would you call it a rugged experience or rugged edged, um, backpacking trip, right? Ragged edged, right? Ragged edged, uh, and you need a little bit more stability, but you still kind of want to have this experience. That's another way to have, you know, go work at an international school. They're going to probably pay for your flight mm -hmm. to get there. Uh, and they're going to set you up with a place to stay. And then another way is going back to teaching English. I know that at Lithuania, LCC, uh, International University, for instance, they have a summer language institute in July where they bring in volunteers to teach English. 
So that's a great way to get started. You still have to pay for your airline ticket, but they'll give you a place to stay and you're going to be picked up at the airport. You're going to have that kind of stability, right? And that I think will will set you off on this path of, of looking for your own adventure. Yeah, I, I actually, I gave it, I presented it the other way around, you know, the idea, do your ragged edge travels first and then get your more formal study abroad or job. When in fact, I sort of did the opposite. I, I actually worked in Korea first. I had a, my plane ticket was paid for. I made a lot, lot of money. And then I did my truly ragged edged travels. So I, I sort of went against, I think both versions can work, but sure. Yeah. If you can get a job at an international school that gets you a place, then like slowly you get, you, you sort of get your sense for living internationally so that you're much more confident when you get into your ragged edge travelers, your ragged edge travel. So I'm not going to be too fundamentalist about when you should do your ragged edge travels and when you should do your more formal ones. But I, I guess the, the point is, is there's a ton of options. There's no one perfect way right. to do things. And that a lot of times the excuses we make not to leave home and have a long-term experience overseas are founded in fears and anxieties that don't really have any real world relevance, you yeah. know? Yeah, and once you start, you realize that they don't have that relevance. This, I'm gonna recommend your book, uh, Vagabonding, a, An Uncommon Guide to Long-Term Travel. Yeah. It published like 23 years ago. Yeah, and re-edited recently this year, yeah, yeah. last year. It's it's all current, the philosophy doesn't change much, the yeah. philosophy of long-term travel. Um, a lot of the resources and, and language changes every few years, so I, I, I do some updates, but. I wondered about that because I, I had the I have the original uh, edition and some of the sites that you have at the end of the book. I wonder if they're still. <laughs> I think it might be zero percent of those websites work. Uh, but the funny thing is, is that people they you actually I've kept those all those websites current on vagabonding.net. So if you go to vagabonding.net slash resources, they're all updated anyway. You don't actually have to buy the book to get those because those have been updated quite faithfully for twenty years now. Um, and, but the philosophy, the life philosophy ideas like time wealth, um, that is more, uh, less specific to a certain historical era, you know, right. we, and I, I recommended this book to people who don't even want to travel. And they've talked about how you're right. It's, it's more, it's less, well, it is about travel, of course, but it's also about perspective and about how you, how you want to live your life and kind of reorganizing your, your priorities and so forth. So I think it's a great, it's a great book. Not very long either. It reads very quickly, mm. very easily. So that's my recommendation. You got a recommendation? Yeah, I, I would recommend any of the anthologies by Traveler's Tales, um, which is published out of San Francisco. They published my second book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There. And they've been friends for a long time, but every year or nearly every year, they put out best travel writing and best women's travel writing. Um, and these are just a collections of maybe 20 or so stories about different aspects of travel. Sometimes it's not long-term, but it usually is. It's, it's usually written by people who know travel really well. Um, and one great thing about an anthology is that you're not stuck with one person for 200 pages. You know, you're sort of jumping from different perspectives. Um, and so that you're not just getting you know, one guy or woman's perspective, but you're jumping from a lot of different perspectives to give you different um, examples of this. And it's misadventures as well as adventures and, and it's fun. Traveler's Tales is, um, I think it's probably travelerstales.com and they have a ton of books and it's a good place to start when you're trying to get a taste for what might be out there. Should we spin the globe? Yeah. All right, you ready? I'm ready. I like this skin spin the globe business. Oh my goodness. We, let's say Grenada or Cuba? 
We got to go Cuba. Okay, yeah. I was, I was close enough to Cuba that we may as well be, because I know that you have a personal connection I to Cuba. I do have a personal connection with Cuba, because I am half Cuban, and mm -hmm. I did spend a week there, and, was, and I and I love spending a week there partly because I didn't have any technology, and my phone wasn't ringing every every couple of seconds. Uh, and it was great to see the place where my father was born and, and you know, the culture that he was that he was raised in. Uh, but Plaza Revolución, uh, again, it's just an amazing place, a kind of throwback uh, you know, to what I, what I, what I imagine the world was before the internet, right. Where people just kind of gather and they talk about the news and baseball and so forth. But you have an interesting story in Cuba as well. You have an interesting connection in Cuba as well. Yeah. Well, I, I went there by way of the Dominican Republic in 07 and I spent a month there. I, I thought I was going to be writing a, a, a book about how to learn Latin American dances like merengue and salsa and, um, samba and things like that. Cause at, at that point in my travel writing career, it's like, yeah, I can climb a mountain, but I've climbed a lot of mountains. Maybe I should learn to dance in a way that I don't know how to dance. Well, that book sort of failed for a number of reasons. One of which in Cuba is that I befriended, I, I like hired a tutor to, and I was taking dance lessons every day, but through a friend of a friend, I befriended this group of young people who play the bagpipes <laughs> at the Asturian Federation. And so it's this, it's sort of an immigrant society that's been there since the 19th century from a Celtic part of Spain. And the bagpipes are a big deal. So it's sort of these young, the best word to describe them would be hipsters, like people in their mid twenties, very well educated. They didn't want to dance to salsa. Their grandma danced to salsa. They, they wanted to learn the bagpipes and they were good actually. So I hung out in Havana for a month, learned a little bit of salsa, um, but mostly hung out with these amazing bagpack playing Cubans and just had a delightful time. And the lesson I got from that is that you can't, that's one problem with expectations. Just when you think that Cuba is expressed through salsa and son and old American cars. And cigars. Um, and and, and yeah, cigars and daiquiris or whatever they serve there. Then suddenly you're having the time of your life playing the bagpipes in <laughs> Cuba. And so I love that. I tell that story. I'll probably always tell that story because it was such a delightful surprise that I couldn't have predicted. But it's what I remember Cuba now, That's by awesome. now. Yeah. And so my, my hope is that people listening to this podcast will look at a map of the world, uh, dream and vision of a long-term travel with whatever expectations, but then they'll, you know, they'll protect those expectations a little bit, liberate them a little bit, and then figure out a way to, to do long-term travel. Cause it is important to travel, to see new places, meet new people, try new things and, and be safe most of the time. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.